everyone. Good evening. It's almost evening. Yes, it is. All right. Welcome, welcome. My name is Tamina Kausji. I will be your moderator for this last session. Actually, the last, the very last panel session of GTLF 2019. Forwards, afterwards, quite fittingly so, I have with me three storytellers for the day, for the storytelling panel. So, just as a little prelude, now of course, the promise of the digital age encouraged us to believe that only positive changes would come when we lived in a hyper-connected world of communities where you can access anything at the click of a button. But what has happened by living in a constant bubble of digital overstimulation to storytelling? So we've evolved, or as some might say, devolved from groups of hunter-gatherers listening to a storyteller around a fire to solitary, massive, multiplayer online role-playing games about myths and re legendary realms. So here to discuss this essential question of storytelling is my panel, consisting of Lur Al-Gurabi, Iraqi-Australian writer of memoir, with storyteller extraordinaire, Kamini Ramachandran, joined by story and innovation maestro, Raymond Miranda. Can we have a round of applause for them before we begin? <laughs> I'd love for you all to just keep it as an integrated conversation. It's not just a question that's going to be for either one of you. So let's consider this first and foremost to begin with. Last week, um, at an event that I was emceeing and moderating, I came across a CEO of a financial company. He handed me his business card. It said, CEO XXY, storyteller. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> so you've all got mics. Feel free to go off with a bang. CEO, financial company, storyteller, that was his title. Or at least the one he preferred to go by. I'm interested in how that makes, like the, th the way I think about a title on a business card is that's a permanent thing. How do you switch that on permanently? How do you identify, but that's, but that's the thing. If you're a poet, you're a poet 24 seven, aren't you? Um, you're never not a poet. Even if you don't write poetry for 10 years, you're still a poet. Um, so I, I, I think I see the logic in that. Um, I'm interested to see how they, what do they think storytelling is? I, I would look at the situation, what's he a CEO of? If he's a CEO of a film production company, if he's a CEO of a company that is producing a storytelling festival, perhaps, but otherwise, if you just have storyteller and nothing else, I would assume you have a repertoire. I would assume that you understand the genre of storytelling. And like Lur mentioned, it is something that you do consistently, constantly, and for a long period of time in order to adopt that title and only that title. So Raymond, you work in the arena of tech, business, startups, etc. Your perspectives on this? So I think there's a, there's a, there's a great deal of danger now as a lot of people are adapting the term because it's popular. Uh, and the difficulty is, who, who's, who's the storyteller police? You know, is there somebody that says, ah, you are, the, you are right, you're wrong, you don't know how to tell a story, you've only told three stories, and there isn't, there isn't that person, right? So we are left to define what this means in this new era. We're left to figure out to, to really negotiate and battle, what, 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 what does it really mean uh, to be a storyteller? And I think that's both worrying and exciting 
because it, it really brings us to a level of conversation that didn't maybe exist before as we have thought about what is a storyteller. And that excites me. That the, the very question is coming out because now everybody's claiming to be a storyteller. And Just to jump onto what you said, um, Raymond mentioned who is the storytelling police. So is there a police? So not in the, the police? Yeah, not in the contemporary world. If you go back to storytelling as we knew it from the oral tradition genre and the oral tradition world, there would have been an equivalent of a storytelling police that would be the gatekeepers and the tradition bearers because uh, the label storyteller came with a lot of other responsibilities. And they themselves may not have called themselves storytellers and they never had name cards for sure. Uh, but this idea of gatekeeping and tradition bearing comes very closely related to any kind of practice which is entrenched in some form. So storytelling is an art form and that's the practice culture, heritage, language, tradition that it surrounds. So to call yourself a storyteller in contemporary society and to put it on a name card, you have to know what your practice is and what are you embedded in. And why do you think the term storytelling itself as a self-descriptor for individuals from various industries and backgrounds, most often never from actual active storytelling as a profession, why has it become so popular? I've seen it particularly, it's just surged all the way in the past three to five years. I never used to hear about it before that, at least not on a business card, at least not as a, oh, I'm a storyteller, the way some might say I am an influencer. Why that resurgence? I would just say that the term is accessible to all ages, um, all communities across the spectrum. And it's also something that is eye-catching. And so when you're overloaded with information and people are actually not reading traditional mediums of media and press, and are actually just looking in the sidelines and the periphery of something else that they're viewing, like a video or a post, you need a single word to captivate and to get attention. I mean, that is a trick of a good storyteller. Mm -hmm. So this word has been borrowed by like you said, anybody from anywhere. And it's just one step into that click to allow you to understand what else they do. So that's personally what I've observed, especially in Singapore, and with the labeling of um, anyone from somebody who makes coffee to somebody who sculpts with flowers, calling themselves a storyteller. So on that note, let's go back, let's backtrack a little bit. Your first experiences or perhaps the most profound thing that was imprinted upon you personally in the storytelling, storytelling realm, what was it? Was it some point from your childhood? Did it come across later as an adult, as a professional? The very first dream I remember is us moving into a new home in Baghdad, which was filthy. No one had lived in it in years. And it was just so dusty. And I was crawling. That's in the dream, I was crawling. Um, and I crawled all around the house, cleaned it up. And my father looked at me, just disgusted by how my clothes were covered in dirt, picked me up and kissed me anyway. That's the first story I remember. Um, that's the first dream I remember. And I think so much of that uh, so much of the most beautiful stories I've read from other people come to their first memories and their first childhood. I think it's a great question. Um, because what 
the first things that have stuck to our minds for the 30, 40, 50, 100 years we've lived, why is it that that stuck to our minds? Mm. I'm sure I've had dreams before that. I had that dream when I was about five or six. Um, because it was definitely in Iraq. And we left when I was six. So it was, I was definitely younger than six. But why was it that that stuck? Why was it the image of my father picking me up from the ground that stuck with me? And I'm, I'm really interested because I write memoir predominantly. And I'm interested in what stays in our memory. Uh, I'd love to hear what your experience as well. Raymond, I think you'd mentioned when we discussed this before, um, the experience of your grandmother telling you war stories. Why does that stick out so significantly to you till today? I think the juxtaposition, just sort of, you know, sort of thinking through, wow, that is a world I, I, I do not recognize. That is a grandmother I do not recognize. And then you're sort of uh, piecing those, so what happened there? What happened there? And there's this mind that sort of goes, wait, there was a war? And how old were you? And where were your children? And, where were you? so, and like all of those things that didn't fit my lovely, you know, 70-year-old grandmother who is, we know now as the greatest cook, you know, greatest Vindalu maker. We've distilled her to the most loving Vindalu maker. And that's it, right? And then she has this experience. She has this truth. She has this history that you don't, you have to fill out in your head. Uh, and, and, and that becomes, you know, extraordinary, exciting, exciting and then meaningful in your, and that's what you do, right? You're making, you're, you're, you're making connections, you're looking for patterns, and you're making sense. And there's this active journey that you take with the person who's telling you that story. Um, and so, yes, my grandmother would be a, a, a pivotal person. My grandmother was, I mean, the other place that I, I, I discovered stories, and probably an early indication that I may, have got, may get into this field, was, I, you know, I was Catholic, so I grew up listening to these parables from the Bible, and I remember them vividly in one moment going, that, that, that doesn't make sense. That parable does not make sense. Why would the, the father accept that son who did all these crazy things? And it was this act, of nego this act of sort of making sense. And so maybe that's more what I do. Did you rewrite that parable in your head? Yeah, Just so I think, I think I did. I was, I was sense-making, right? I was always trying to make sense of these stories in relationship to who I was in, in that moment. Uh, and for me, that's become the active part of storytelling for me. Me not just receiving the story, but, but seeing how, where I, I am in the, in the context of that, of that space and that storyteller, yeah. Kamini, I think this question for you particularly, somebody who not only works in the realm, but you live, you breathe oral storytelling. What was a significant juncture in your early life, perhaps, that put, put you on this path today? So similar to what Raymond mentioned, um, the most influential person in my life, in my practice as a storyteller, was my late grandfather. Um, he was a storyteller, but what I remember more and earlier than him being the storyteller in the family was this immersiveness in mythology and folklore. And of course, it's related to his voice and the other voices of the elders in the extended family so I may not be able to distinguish and see them, but the voices that told me stories from Hindu mythology, from Malay folklore in two, three different languages, that is my early introduction to, the, to this entire realm of story. 
So it's not person or incident related. It is actually very much linked to the, the folk tale and the myth that I heard. And is there a distinction you feel between having a story to tell and the craft of storytelling itself? So that's where this title comes in, right? Anyone can tell a story now. Or no, now. I think that's just a budget yeah. airline tag. Correct. Let's disregard that. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to put it out there, yeah. <laughs> People have messages they want to communicate. People have opinions they would like to share. People have feelings that they would like other people to hear. Those things are not necessarily stories. Stories, if you look into the structure of a story, there is a common thread that links a sequence of incidences. There is a repeated pattern that allows the listener to be able to visualize and then when the story has ended, to recall and retell that story. So, I think messages, information, data, opinions should just call themselves that. They have that as a category. And stories are rather different. Is it just good branding then that, you know, every time you see an advertisement for a salad bar to a jar of face cream, it all says, oh, story. What does that make you feel as storytellers when you see it branded as such, sold as such, and by and large, accepted by the masses as such that, oh, if I want to buy thing X could be a handphone. I need to know its story. I'm interested in how capitalism has kind of um, co-opted a form that's very close to people's hearts for a very good reason. I mean, I think one of the reasons I seek stories uh, of others, I seek memoir of others, is because I want to find something to cling to. I want to find something that gives me hope. I want to find something that relates. I want to understand what I'm going through. So I read what other people are going through, and I read how they're making sense of it. And to see it on the back of a shampoo bottle, it's, 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 it's mesmerizing. Because shampoo is telling you where the ingredients came from. Is that yes. a story, right? But that's the thing. Um, I would... I would stay and read the story about the manufacturer who's making something, but that's, I, fi I find that a bit manipulative. Mm. I find it a bit manipulative. I find it a bit manipulative because it implies there's a human element. But the fact is, the human in that chain of production is probably highly disregarded. Mm. Um, so I, I find it very manipulative and a bit, a bit, Jeez, it irks me. Yeah. It, it makes me a bit uncomfortable. What do you think? So, I mean, I, I work with, uh, largely with startups um, with the main goal to solve problems to change the world. So, there are startups in Europe. Um, and and, and what, the way I introduce the idea of story is it's not a product. The person who says, this is the solution I want to bring to the world, whether it is I'm trying to build a drone that can... Uh, measure the soil works. You know, people who say this is what I want to do, I want to know where did this come from? Where is the moment you cared about the soil? And they've got these incredible stories. You know, I remember my grandfather and us and the olive tree. And I'm like, so you remember that moment where soil made sense to you? And if you remember that moment where soil made sense to you and why you want to solve this particular solution, then you will understand that this is coming out of a deeper calling. And I think this is the disconnect. People don't know the story that led them to create something 
of meaning to solve a problem. And because that, that story doesn't exist, we are not asked, we're not asking human beings to express themselves and their world and their, and their desire from that place of honesty. Then we create things that are just about capitalism. Then we create things that are solving problems that are just about what's, who's, who's going to scale the fastest to get the biggest money. And that human disconnect between the individual innovator and the sub problems they're solving is, is the conversation I'm trying to bring back to the table. Uh, because if we can't bring that conversation to people who are creating capitalistic products that are solving the world, then their disconnect will be perpetuated by the very people who you choose to build those products. You know, so, so this is all for me story. This is the moment you decide that I am going to give, bring something into the world, you've got to know where that, that is. The moment you start convincing other people to join your vision, that's a story. The moment you keep growing, that's all stories. That you, and, and, the, and, the, and the truth has to build systematically. And because we lose that truth, we lose that track, we lose our sense of, 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 and then we try and fake stories. And then we try and create stories for products that don't exist because we think that is what we have to do because we've lost ourselves in the process already. I think that was excellently expressed, Raymond, but also in the wider scope of things, we are living in a post-truth age. And do you feel that it is literally the success of this co-opting of storytelling which has led to peak consumerism, what we're living through today, quite physically? The fact that we, we I think on, on every scale, everybody in some form overconsumes, be it products or otherwise. Has this actually been fueled by the fact that uh, mini stories are being successfully stole as an entire narrative for life itself and everything that you have to populate yours with? Um, I think so. I think because there is a disconnect between my story and what, because there's a disconnect between my story, I'm, ask, I'm, I'm expecting products and people and things to make up my story, right? So, so if I have this, I am this, this is, this is my story. And if I have that, that's my story. And so we're feeling, we're, we're using products to tell the story of who we are because we cannot, we, we, we do not know effectively how to represent ourselves in authentic ways. So this is the number one way in which advertising works for us. It tells you, you are deficient in some way. Let us fill that deficiency with this product. And if you, sh if you wear that product, if you have that product, you are this because you don't know who you are. And you are this. We'll fill that gap for you. We'll fill the not knowing. We'll fill the story that you cannot, we cannot, you're not brave enough to tell about yourself. I, I find it really interesting that we tend to do that and fall for that trap even when we are storytellers ourselves. Because mm. um, the first half of your answer, I was thinking, well, why don't we paint a little bit more? And then the second half of your answer, I thought, hold on, Lure, you're a writer. You shouldn't be looking for stories in the backs of shampoos, but you do. Um, so I, I just find that really interesting that even the, I, I think in a capitalist labor exploitative world, uh, this is what concerns me now, that even the act of storytelling, when it becomes labor, it loses some of that fulfilling um, expressive value that it had where we got to document and narrate ourselves on the page. Um, so I, I find that really interesting, what, what happens with storytelling once it becomes laborious, uh, or once we start making a living from it, once we start paying the rent with it. 
Yeah. Kamini, why would you say we as humans, it's inarguable, we, we love stories, but why are we almost hardwired for storytelling? So moving away from you know, the discussion about products and advertising, just to answer that question. So I mentioned this in the workshop yesterday, when a mammal is born, so a puppy, a kitten, a human baby, we all have this ability to receive communication in the form of memes. And memes are similar to the genetic code that we have, which is genes. And memes are repeated phrases, repeated patterns, a frequency of the repetition that you would see in lullabies, in the mother patting, in the animal lifting and moving with the infant child in its, in its mouth or on its back. And all of this is meant to communicate non-verbally with that infant to make that bond and connection and provide a sense of safety, calm and soothing that will then kickstart all the physiological things that that infant needs in order to survive from breathing, from learning to move and from digesting food or milk or whatever it consumes. So all of this starts with this non-verbal storytelling that we as human beings are hardwired at birth, at the point of birth. And so when you extrapolate on this, that this is how we receive and consume information, of course advertising and people who place products are going to use it. Um, but coming back to what Raymond said, that we are trying to surround ourselves with products to give ourselves meaning and to add on to our story and to relate to ourselves and convince ourselves that this is our story. Um, I would just replace products with culture, language, tradition and heritage as being the building blocks that ensure that this mammal or this child doesn't need to later on look for products and advertising to make sense of themselves and to give themselves a story. So the reason this has happened is literally the last 50 years, there's been a gap in providing children with these building blocks. So before we go back into that though, I'd like to ask about what are the frustrations that come for you all as storytellers uh, with having the dilution of the term storytelling, either in your personal practice, your own work, or even looking at it as a wider question? Um, I think one of the challenges of that is, um, can I talk about the Guardian personal essays? <laughs> um, the ones which, Sure, whatever yeah, you wish yeah. best illustrates yes. this or helps um, to exemplify your feeling. Yeah, Me memoir kind of became a trend. Uh, or nonfiction, creative nonfiction kind of, is, it's, it's riding a wave at the moment. And it's fantastic. I'm, I'm learning so much from that and I'm really enjoying reading every, everybody else's extremely personal and intimate experiences um, in publications and that's, I think that's fantastic. At the same time, we have, because, because of that wave, we've got type of contents online where someone could easily write 800 words for The Guardian about how they don't think they should take off their backpack when they got on a bus. That's an essay that exists, and that's okay. Um, but what is that doing 
in terms of if everybody could read a few stories a day, what stories are they reading? So now that we do have a platform, what are we doing with it? Um, now that nonfiction is having a moment, what are we doing with that freedom? What are publishers doing with that freedom? What are authors doing with that freedom? And what are readers doing with the abundance of content that they have in front of them? What are they choosing to go to? Are they choosing to go to the back of a shampoo bottle? Are they choosing to go to a story by the backpack? Are they choosing to go to um, more, more journalism or, more, um, or something a bit more close to heart or something that represents them? Um, what are we choosing to do with that freedom, I think, is a fascinating thing to go into. Um, and I can see how in a modern world, especially for millennials, they're so exhausted and they're so tired by the way the universe has um, kind of been manipulated by generations before, has kind of been, the planet has been destroyed by generations before. They, their future prospects are quite, they're, they're not very bright. Not in terms of house ownership, not in terms of water levels, not in terms of um, the Amazon forests. Things are looking grim. So I can see how in a world like that, we are so consumed by daily survival in a way that we don't get to resort to art for the things that it, um, for the things that it can give. And consequently, when the term storytelling is diluted, we're losing something that could very much be keeping us sane. Um, that, that breaks my heart a little bit. That breaks my heart because I, the closer we get or the higher that frustration gets with the way the modern world is shaping out to be, the more I find that storytelling necessary, like you said, from birth. Now, on that, I just recently, I think two days ago, read a long form by Rob Sheridan, who is a writer, essayist, but also previously worked with Nine Inch Nails, the band. And he was saying and expressing the fact in defense of millennials, saying that it's not that song lyrics of millennials are lacking emotion, lacking depth. He said it's that millennials actually have so many different avenues that their rage is no longer has to be concentrated in song lyrics alone. So many platforms. But Raymond, you had something to add to. What are the frustrations of having the storytelling phrase itself co-opted by any and every industry. Lots of millennials here. Um, good. You know, one of the things that, uh, about, um, about seven, seven, eight months ago, I got really frustrated that people think I do this when I say, you know, I work in the, in the area of story and, and I'm really not this, I'm this something else. And I got really frustrated that there's this, this term has been co-opted, has been generalized to mean so many things. And then, and then I asked myself, well, what if you have a story? Are you not a storyteller? What if you have a story and somebody wants to listen? Are you not a storyteller? You know, are we, am I fighting for the person who knows the craft of storytelling, who spent years because I have done that, and therefore I want to tell the world I am special in knowing this craft? Or is the truth, so long as I have a story, then I, and somebody is listening, I become a storyteller. Now what? Now what, what, what does that do to me, right? If that is the truth, if, if in a moment I have something to say and I can say it, I can put it in a picture and, I, and all of this becomes story, then, then, then what, 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 what do I, what, what am I? What am I in this hierarchy of, because I put myself quite high and it's been years of studying, I studied the craft, da, 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 da. And I think the, 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 the sort of 
evolving notion, so it's not, I have not arrived at, at this truth. The evolving notion is this, everybody can, now everybody can tell a story, is going to bring story to a certain level of generalization that is important. And that gener generalization can evolve because the thirst for greater understanding of the implications of story can grow from here. It requires us to rename, to rebrand what those other levels of storytelling, you know, what is midlife storytelling? What is, you know, uh, birthing storytelling? What is all these other places? And what are those implications that we just so generalize in that term? Because we can't run away from that generalization. It's happened. Any sort of conversation that argues, ah, oh, that generalization is not good, is backtracking. It's happened. Now what does that mean? What, what, what do we grapple with? So yes, I think the, the author, the, the, sorry, I forgot his name. Rob Sheridan, yeah. Sheridan, right. Yes, so yes, now there are so many versions of how one experiences story. What is the greater level of thirst now? Where does this, 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 this access, what, is, where, what gaps do the access create that story then has to evolve to fill? And I don't know the answer to that, but it's an exciting question. What gaps do they create because of its constantness in the human soul, that story will have to fail in what form? Because don't forget, the stories do something to us. And, 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 and all we are saying is, this is what it does. So we're not, we, can't be, we, we can't be so precious about storytelling. We have to remember that what we are saying back is what storytelling does to the human soul. And the human soul will have to identify that question in this evolution. It always has. We've always been able to find our version of higher levels of story. And I, I continue to believe that that could be true. Um, yeah. And on a fundamental level, I would say stories move us. The cultural phenomenon that is um, TED Talks, TEDx Talks. Hands up who's watched a TEDx or a TED Talk in the past week or month. Yeah. Why did you watch or click on the one that you clicked on. We can think about that as well. Was it a story? The ones which have you know, 10, 20, sometimes 50 million views. The essence of it possibly was that there were ingredients or it was a well-told story after all. But moving back to Kamini now, um, and this was also something we discussed yesterday where you said that there was a clear point, at least in the Southeast Asian experience, whereby post-World War II, there's an attrition in how children received stories. And those children are, well, adults today, full-grown adults, raising their own generation of children. Let's elaborate on that. So the discussion that we had, um, just a bit of context, I have a 19-year-old and two boys, 19 and 18-year-old. Um, and I teach at, in, in an arts college, an institute of higher education between the ages of 16 to 26. I also do storytelling for organizations, and then I design storytelling programs for ages three to eight. So in the last 20 years, what has been most alarming to me is young parents who are in their 20s and early 30s coming to me desperate, telling me, I do not know how to connect with my child because there is a device between us, a physical device. I also do not know how to connect with my child and how to parent because I don't feel I am equipped with my cultural stories and I don't know where to start telling them stories. I don't know what books to borrow 
I am at a loss, and so I need a person like you to help me be a better parent. And recently, so this is like moving into my third decade, I have grandparents coming to me, telling me that my grandchild is growing up in a very disconnected world, and my children are not able to address this. I myself have forgotten my mythology and my cultural stories, and so I need guidance and guidelines. And so there has been, literally at the end of World War II, so more than 50 years ago, this disappearance of the extended family and the resurgence of the nuclear family, loss of dialect and being bilingual and trilingual, and only learning one language and learning it well, which handicaps us in terms of communicating with the older people in community and reading material that is not necessarily translated into English. So this is a real problem that I'm dealing with and working with organizations and ministry and um, education in how to bring back storytelling as a way to identify who you are, to feel rooted, a sense of belonging, and more importantly, as that glue that holds young families together. And so it's a serious problem, especially in a, in a metropolis like Singapore, where people are also not reading, right? So how do you address all these issues in basic human relationships and communication when it's not just a lack of oral storytelling, it's also a lack of reading? Lack of reading. From there, moving into lore. Now, you shared that you spend a lot of your time also disseminating your stories and the work that you do online. Do you find that the value of your storytelling remains with the online medium, or is it diluted? Actually, it's much harder to keep people's attention on Snapchat than it is anywhere else. And I think one of the greatest exercises I've really enjoyed over Snapchat is over a year, I had to work. I worked at a not-for-profit. Fantastic job, fantastic place. But I had a specific coworker who was incredibly problematic. Her name was, we're gonna call her Karen. Um, and okay, Karen. <laughs> Karen was extremely typical of a person with a name like Karen. Um, she, was, she was a character that was just textbook, you know? Can I talk to your manager? Would you like to try some carob chocolates? Um, it's vegan. Uh, but she was not vegan. Uh, she refused to go vegan, but she liked the vegan chocolates. It's, she, was, she was one of those people who kind of met the stereotype of a white, upper-middle-class woman in every way. She just ticked every box, and it was gorgeous to observe. Because uh, you don't meet those people. You hear about them. They're on Twitter. You know, they're, they're a meme. But they don't, you don't actually run into a Karen. So when I did, I, I thought it was just a gold mine. This is a treasure for storytelling. So I started Snapchatting about it to about 12 people whom I trusted to, to, with all the information I had about Sharon. Highly unethical, but again, 12 people, Snapchat. You can get away with so much. Um, and it's private. And Snapchat, once you view a story once, it just disappears for good. So it's great. Um, and I started kind of just documenting a bit of Sharon's behavior um, and going like, here's what Sharon said to me today. And people find it very funny. They, responded, which, was, which is quite rare on Snapchat. People responded and were like, yeah, actually, told, that's, that's really funny. And over the year, Sharon's character progressed so much. She, um, 
went from being that kind of very stereotypical person to gaining so much more depth slowly and slowly. She was having problems at home. She wasn't very happy in her marriage. Her husband, she thinks that because he consumed too many soy products, um, that he, that's why he acts a little bit feminine. So she won't let her son, who's lactose intolerant, consume soy products, which is, you can't make this up. I believe you right now. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but there, there were underlying issues to address in every single one of these things. But every time I documented a, just a Snapchat, literally just a Snapchat of what she said, people understood exactly the layers behind it. And 12 months later, in the grand finale of Sharon's behavior, when she just kind of came out, as, and, and th there was a period in where Sharon kind of hit it on me, um, and she was also a very, very conservative Christian, like very conservative uh, and quite racist at times and quite misogynistic. Um, so when then the tension came that she was actually perhaps sexually a bit ambiguous, that was exciting for, 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 the, for, the, for my audience of 12. Um, they were like, ooh, things just got interesting. Um, and, and over 12 months, I just kind of built, she built a character. I just documented it um, for, for, for a very small audience. And in the end, there was kind of a grand finale of her behavior where she just yelled at, that was my last day at work, and she yelled at our designer, she yelled at me, she said incredibly racist things, then she ate my lunch, and then she finished the last of my limited edition hand cream. Uh, and people, I thought it was fascinating how on Snapchat you could maintain someone's attention in a story over 12 months and people are doing this over TikTok. People are doing this over, they used to be doing this over Vine. People are doing this on Twitter. These, you get these elaborate Twitter threads of someone stuck in a cafe in a really awkward situation. And then they just start tweeting about it. And all, the only thing you want to do in that moment is just find out what happened next. You just want to find out what happened in the next tweet. There was one person over Halloween, for example, who got stuck in a haunted house. And he tweeted about it over six months. And he even shared photos, and the whole thing might have been staged, who cares? But he even shared photos of people staring at him from the forest, this blind woman following him, a person with no eyes, eyes he found in a, in a stovetop, um, on a stovetop in the, in the kitchen. Um, so no, I think, I think it actually is opening so many doors, is what I'm trying to say. Um, I don't think that the accessibility of it, the democratization of it, the new avenues for it, have been limiting in any way. And in fact, there is so much fun in addressing the challenge of how to keep people's attention online and how to build an actual narrative arc, whether you're doing it over an Instagram story, whether you're doing it over a thread of TikToks, or whether you're doing it over tweets. Um, and I think every storyteller, whether in fiction or nonfiction, should really exercise playing with that audience and should really exercise maintaining, um, not for the sake of the clout or anything, but just for ma maintaining a Twitter following, getting people to engage with you, to see how can you say something that resonates? How can you build a narrative? How can you build a story that people go like, with? Um, so I, I just think it's a fantastic exercise. I think that even writing memoir in nonfiction has gotten so much more fun because um, I can see my audience. I can see exactly what they're engaging with, exactly what they're clicking on. Uh, and it, it has changed the storytelling fundamentally what they're reacting to. Raymond. I, I just want to say, of everything that we said, which was very profound, you will remember Karen's story. Yeah. <laughs> you remember a lot of detail 
the human story, story, perhaps? Yeah. Is that what we're yeah. talking about? Just yeah. no, just the yeah, because there's a human, there's a person, what you did, you will remember those details more than anything that we have said that is of value. Tomorrow you can test me, you can pull me on the street and say, and I'll ask you, say, hey, ask me what that what I remember most. And 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 while there's there's something there's something really interesting about that, right? It's actually, I'm like, damn you, man. I said some really important things. They won't remember it. They'll remember Karen, <laughs> right? Um, but there's something about the human, the, 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 our sense of why we connected, why we saw Karen, what we saw when she ate and what she stole. And what, you know, our, our imagination was filling it up. We were not just taking information, um, facts. We were creating this, we were co-creating this world with her. And that's why it's so powerful. Um, and, and this is the act of talking about this, this, this idea. And, 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 and because you also write um, uh, uh, nonfiction and biography work, uh, for me, this is really very exciting. This possibility for us to look at moments as, as, as worthy stories. Now, when you talk about the gentleman that did the it doesn't matter whether if it's a, if, if it's a true story or not. I, I get it for its for its implications on entertainment. Um, I, I I wonder. So I will personally worry too much if we go in the realm of entertainment too much. If we go into the realm of fake too much, because all those things. And so I talked about yesterday. I talked about the, the the fake story that can arrive in the last two hours of an election that can change democracies. Uh, so I had a cousin today who told me, I felt that America changed in one day. She said, in one day, America had changed. And, and if you think about what that means, if you think about the implications of story and fake story and, 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 and entertainment and all those things, you have to think about it simultaneously in its broader context of how it's used. Because it's simple and it's beautiful and it's engaging. And, and, and I don't want to think, you know, and when I'm dealing with Karen, I don't want to think about the implications of, you know, whether a true story with Trump and all that. I'm just excited about this story, right? But some of us have to also ask ourselves those larger questions. And that's what we're trying to do here, right? Because this is the story that's a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun listening to it. Uh, I um, love that you contextualize all of that, Raymond. Now, I want to link back what Raymond said to what Laura said to what Kamini was saying before to the fact that when there's a narrative arc, when we're sharing, particularly on, on digital platforms, on social media. Perhaps the most, the hugest watershed moment for me, not just as a journalist, but as somebody who loves words, was the global phenomenal rise of the Me Too movement. It started out with just a couple of hundred people, then it went to thousands, then it went to millions. It went into permutations of not just women sharing their stories, queer and trans individuals, then men and boys, Me Too became church to church to became mosque Me Too, mosque Me Too became Molka in South Korea. Then there was a South Korean actor who killed himself because of accusations of having sexually harassed almost 10 women. So it's had a rapid global, it spread like wildfire. So there is also a lot of social impact that comes out of this. Um, do we still call these stories just out of convenience or are they genuinely stories, particularly when it is about the rawest parts of the human experience being shared up there, but in 140 characters? Kamini. Um, in storytelling and even in oral tradition, there is a big component that is called healing stories and the power of stories to heal. 
And usually it starts with myth or folklore. And then the whole point of this kind of transformational or expressive narrative is as a bridge, as a segue, to get the community of listeners to begin to share and open up about true personal stories. So the role of folklore and myth in community arts is to act as that bridge. So using characters from fiction, using situations that are from the imagination as an expressive mode to open up personal truth to be shared. So um, whatever platform it is, whether it's a, it's a person like me with a group of women who are in a public institution and we are there to facilitate and to encourage these truth, true stories to come out. Where does this end and is this for entertainment and what is the point of the storyteller beginning this chain reaction? Because you have to hold the hand of the listener in a situation like this. Who is holding the hand of all these women, men or children when we start this domino effect of sharing personal narratives. There is huge responsibility in doing personal storytelling, which is very different to doing storytelling and telling something that comes from oral tradition and making it very clear that all I'm doing here is telling you something from the past. I don't expect you to start sharing your truth with me. So with two teenage sons and working with teenagers and young adults, it can all be wonderful to put your truth out there in, in a public domain for the whole world to see. But then comes what you spoke about, the engagement. So what makes us storytellers is that we don't work in silos. We work with you, our listeners, our audience, our consumers. So the moment you engage with us, that's when this connection between both of us start. So whether it's call and response, a very traditional form in oral tradition, or whether it's someone saying something to a post or a photograph that we have put out there. How do we hold the hand of all these people who are sharing personal, painful secrets, truth? Um, so that's where I think responsibility comes in. Uh, and, and not to take this lightly and to just jump on the bandwagon and feel that you can hold the hand of every listener. So responsibility of storytelling comes in. Laura, what's the responsibility you feel as a writer of memoir in particular? How important is it for you, not just that you're writing your own story, but that you are also representing a highly less, a highly invisible voice through your work? Um, my voice is not invisible. I don't think I'm representing anybody. And I try very hard not to represent anybody other than myself. Um, it is a burden thinking of it that way. Um, because here's the thing. Uh, I mean, my father's a storyteller by every sense of the word. We sit at the dinner table and he'd go like, let me tell you about that time I walked into the office of the man who sentenced me to death to try and get you a passport. And he'd just start and it'd be hilarious, it'd be very funny, it'd be engaging. And, it, and he would just tell it like it was just an adventure, him walking into the lion's den trying not to get killed, getting the passport, and the emphasis on that moment, he's walking away from the office, not knowing when exactly the officer is gonna know. He just made a huge mistake giving him the papers and letting him get away, 
not knowing if he's going to get shot in those 10 meters. Um, fantastic storyteller. He, and he's got, he's got thousands of these. He'll, he'll just take, bring them out whenever you ask for one. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, she tells stories by not telling stories. She tells stories by not talking about the war. She doesn't talk about the years where she didn't know where my father was. She doesn't talk about the escape that we had. She doesn't talk about the bus ride out of Iraq, which was the longest hours of our lives. Um, she doesn't talk about our years in Dubai where we were as broke as church mice. She doesn't talk about missing her family. She talks about her dresses. She talks about that dress that she sued in college where she almost got kicked out of university for it because it was too short and she loved it. Um, she was a very, she is a very fantastic and very skilled seamstress. So, so there's an entire part of her memory, not her memory, there's an entire memory of her experience which she has just erased. Um, she's deleted it. Um, which is the exact opposite of what my father does. He tells it, but he tells it in a funny way. He kind of adapts it into something that you can be entertained by. And if you're entertained, if you're laughing at our dinner table, then everything's okay, I guess. Then, we, then everything was fine. If you, if you can get a moment of laughter from a story, if, you can, if he can get a bit of that engagement, a bit of that clout, um, he'll, be, he'll be quite content. Um, whereas somebody else could choose silence as a way. They could choose to evade. I think there is great responsibility with storytelling that can be traumatic, that can be painful, to let people choose that path and to not expect storytelling. This is something I learned the hard way because I used to write a lot of refugee memoir. And it was great. People loved it. I don't know why. People loved it. They just wanted more. All these white people in Australia, they just wanted more. And I, 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 was, I, I realized this the other day. Since I published my first uh, I didn't publish even. I won a prize. And I was not published. I won a prize for a refugee memoir. And since, I, since the word got out, I had never, I've been published dozens of times. I've never pitched anything. I've, I just get editors in my DM saying, can you write for us? That's not right. <laughs> you shouldn't be asking me for that story. And only now I'm realizing, only in the past few weeks, I'm realizing that that demand for a story, that demand of lived experience from a person of color and confining them in that box is not quite ethical. So to me, a part of the responsibility in memoir is a huge part of that is autonomy and not having the expectation for it. But then again, if you are writing, one of the ways to evade that prison that the industry sometimes tries to put you in is to connect it back to the bigger picture. And I'm learning now, perhaps in the future, when I start writing about my mother, maybe I'm going to think about the bigger picture that got us to where we are today. Maybe I can focus a little bit more on the numbers and the facts that got us here. Maybe I can talk about the factors that manufactured the war that ruined our lives, rather than just the pain, rather than just putting the pain on a stage as a performance, because that doesn't work. That's what it can become. Very true. Raymond, at this point, I want to move into you working with um, corporates, even though it is um, ethically responsible companies, they're not going to stop wanting to tell stories. What would you hope is the work that you are able to do with such organizations, in particular, those who do have a social conscious? How are they going to be able to reflect that in these mini capsules of data? 
So I primarily work in the uh, startup world. There are young people who are saying, idealistically, I want to change the world. I want to get, I want to have this conversation with them at that level for them to remember in the decision to say, I want to step out from the norm. That is the beginning of a story. That is the beginning of your story. You have said, I am going to step out of this norm. That is go to the workforce, uh, workforce and I'm going to create something. You've begun your story. And how will you honor that story? How will you face up with your fears and articulate the fears of that story? How will you be authentic? So at every part of that journey, how will you understand that you are on your own hero's journey uh, as, you are, as you are setting up this company to become something great? Um, I'm idealistic because they're idealistic. I'm like soaking their energy in. Uh, I don't know how to speak to large companies. I don't. I've tried. And I don't. I fail every single time because I, I can't reach this human being that started the dream. I, I, the, the huge corporations that have become something that's bigger than them, bigger than themselves. So they're talking about things that I can't, I can't have access to. I'm talking about the individual choosing to transform the world. And how do we hold that individual accountable as they scale and as they dream and as they create new kinds of products? that are gonna shape our humanity. And this is what I care about. I care about because this is, this is it. The, the next generation are creating products that are actually going to try and save the kinds of stories we get to tell. That is huge. We have five to 10 years to, set, to have product solutions that saves us so that we can have stories to tell. So that we're still here to tell stories at Yes, all. yes. Yeah. And that is not, uh, you know, I, I get very emotional about it because that, that is, it is that time frame. We do have a limited time frame. And we have to hear those young people who are out there trying to do that so that they can save that time frame, so that they can have, so that the one distinction that we have as human beings beyond anybody, any, any other mammal, is our ability to tell stories. And the ability to tell, tell stories is to see a future that is different from the future that we have right now. That is storytelling. I have this capacity to, to push my, to put myself there, to take all my truth and to imagine a new future. Uh, and as these people try and do that, uh, that's the only demographic I, 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 I seem to know how to engage with in any real way. Uh, so, so I don't, I don't know whether I speak to corporations. I speak to individuals who have dreams uh, to use corp the, the corporate world to save. Uh, it still boils down to the individual, though, right? Absolutely. Now, speaking of the fact that you mentioned five to ten years, if anyone's paying any attention at all to the climate question, you would know how crucial that is. Moving now into the value of stories, I'd like to start this though uh, with a short personal anecdote. Um, about five years ago, I was in Kelantan in a very small village doing some research for a documentary on makyong, which is a traditional art form of storytelling um, through dance, through um, tales, legends, and myths. It was banned by the state government um, roughly about 30 odd years ago. Now the interesting thing was this, though I was there to research about, uh, well, so the underground scene of the existing Makyong, which is also very vibrant, even though you literally have to drive three hours out into a paddy field and then you'll suddenly find a small Kampong village house, all lit up, ready for the performance. Then, I happened to have a conversation with an anthropologist friend, um, 
working with the local community, and she said, look, Tem, um, my interest in this arena is how the loss of the Makyong culture being something highly visible for the East Coast communities, something that you saw when you went out to the beach, the Pipantai, and everybody is involved in it. This would have been about 40, 50 years ago, all the way back to primordial history of these people. She said, because of this loss of their stories, and specifically of Makyong, which centers the female, which centers women, which centers their role in society here, you don't see this anymore. She said, that is the reason why we have such incredibly devastating rates of sexual crime and violence against young women and girls in the East Coast of Malaysia. So for me, I want to broach the question. When we have the systems of power, the patriarchy itself in every country, governments, um, leaders, not valuing our stories, how does the individual storyteller, how do those who love stories fight against this tide so that our humanity is not lost in the wider scope of things? I think if we continue, if we continue to answer to publishing models and publishing authorities that are created by these very systems, then we're walking in a dead-end street. And I... Um, uh, Viet Tan Nguyen argues about this in um, the book Nothing Ever Dies, about the Vietnam War. He says, when the memory of the... And I'll use this as an example. He says, the memory of the Vietnam War is very carefully constructed by a highly um, deliberate American industry. And because of such, we only have one version. And even when a Vietnamese American tries to create a version, he still, or she is still, they are still creating it within that already monopolized world, and it's dangerous. And he says the only way we can amend the memory, the only way we can amend the documentation of experience is if we seize the means of memory making. And to seize the means of memory making means a revolution in the way publishing works. Kamini? Um, I'm familiar with what you spoke about, about Mak Yong in Kelantan. And um, my personal response to something like this would be that this is where the role and the voice of the artist, of those in the creative industries, has to be stronger. And so, riding on what Lur said, the example of, is his name Wilson or Winston, the guy with the independent Wilson? So that is the kind of example that is non-conformist, that is independent, that doesn't answer to all these boundaries and all these political decisions. So we need to support that independent voice, that voice that comes from passion, that really isn't doing this for the money or the fame, because we all know how little it pays to do this kind of work. And you, you cannot suppress the voice of creativity forever. So the work that Pusaka is doing in reviving Mak Yong, whether Mak Yong in its fullest form can be seen outside of Kelantan, as I saw it at the Esplanade in Singapore, so these are ways in which the art form 
or the stories can survive. But there is also one important thing in this entire discussion that needs to be addressed. So in oral tradition, in the role of a community storyteller, there is always the danger of telling the single and one story over and over again the same way. So a good storyteller will tell the same story in different ways, catering to different times in geography, whether it's monsoon or whether it's drought, whether it's from a male or female or child or elderly or animal point of view. And this story is the same story, but told from different perspectives for the needs of the listener and community at that place and that time. So it is contextualized tremendously personalized based on the energy that you feel. And that comes from years of experience working with the craft and practicing as a practitioner or as an artist. And the other thing is that we all have the power to reimagine narratives. All of us have the power to reshape our own personal stories that have happened in the past. So it's something that has happened, you cannot change what happened but you can heal yourself and you can perpetuate beauty and happiness and peace by reimagining based on the experiences that have happened in the past to you. So the same thing applies to oral tradition and stories. How can you reimagine these stories? So coming back to the lack of examples of women playing roles, uh, including the role of men, male characters in Ma Yong, and hence this lack of beauty and aesthetics in the female form results in the abuse of the female. Simply means that we need to find a way to present the female form to people who have had this absence. So we need to find an alternate way to present that form. And whether it's through writing, through poetry, through dance, or through things that fit within the boundaries of that place, we have to be proactive as people in the creative industries. So if you cannot fight against a certain legislation or law, find a way that you can approach that topic and create that artistry in other forms that are still within the law. I say this because Singapore is governed by a lot of laws. And there are a lot of regulations and a huge amount of censorship and rating and advisory. It comes from a good place. It comes from a good place to make sure that race and religion is not misunderstood and misinterpreted. But it makes you think, you push boundaries as an artist, as a creative person. How can I work within this? How can I work within this set of laws to present the truth, the real voice, the reimagined stories, and it makes you a sharper performer, a sharper storyteller. So that's my response to that experience that you had. I think that's definitely something to ponder upon, because especially when it comes to storytelling, as much as it's an ancient art, it also has such immediate needs for actionable solutions, actually, which might sound very unromantic, very unstory-like. But Raymond, your perspective on how we can inject this need to recognize the value of stories. So there are two things. There are the storytellers, the people who tell the stories that help us sort of understand the world, organize, make sense of the world. And there are the people who help us make meaning of the world. They're both storytellers. 
They're both organizing, they're, they're both elements of storytelling. When Kamini talked about the fact that parents and grandparents are coming to her and saying, I don't have the proper, they're coming to her as somebody who they can, they can see as a point person somebody who can help them negotiate and, 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 and I used negotiate seven times today, uh, to help them make sense of this gap that they are feeling. Two things we need, people who tell the stories and people who are, help us in sense-making. Uh, and, and so that is also the storyteller, the sense-making helper. Uh, and and, and as, as so much is happening in online, uh, the big question I have is who is the sense-making helper in that context, who's the sense-making helper when the, the sense is being made every second? You know, who are those people? And then we'll begin to see, we'll, I think we will begin to, a new sense-making will e exist out of this because there are different forms. Maybe publishers that were sense-making uh, helpers before, now there are different forms in which it will exist. And I'm really curious to see who those people are for this next generation, yeah. Gatekeepers, from there moving on into the fact that um, storytellers, you populate our collective conscious with characters, vibrant, bold, beautiful, while performing perhaps one of the loneliest jobs in the world. How do you ensure your own well is filled? Um, my job is not lonely as a storyteller. I always tell my students that the storyteller does not exist without listeners. I cannot tell my story to a mirror or in my head, I can't write it. I have to tell it, and in order for me to function in my practice and call myself a storyteller, I need at least one listener, so I'm never alone. And that listener can be a dog or a cat when I'm rehearsing. It can be a baby too. So it is, the role of a storyteller is a community role. It has always been that wise man or woman or that shaman under the banyan tree or in the desert telling stories to one or more people. So it's very different to writing. I work very closely with poets and writers, and that perhaps might be a different kind of practice where you create your stories, you create your poems in solitary experiences. But then this, this material is consumed by thousands and thousands of people who are your readers, your viewers, your listeners. So for me, the craft is different. It's communal. I absolutely agree that it's not lonely. It's not lonely at all. But I will, uh, if I may add, it's not just that it requires at least one listener. It also requires that you would be listening to at least one, another person. Um, so even though I write memoir, I can't do it on my own. And it's not, um, it's, I can't do it trapping myself in a room and only thinking of what's going on inside my head. That would drive me mad. And, and I don't think anybody should do that. I think writing is a communal thing to do. And if we don't have, not just, the, not just the sharing of our own work, if I don't talk to somebody else about why that thing made me feel something in particular, then I can't write about it if I don't externalize it first. Um, so to me, writing comes after a certain, after a certain uh, moment of, not clarity, but perhaps disambiguation. Uh, that comes from sharing with other people. It can't be done on your own. Um, it can't be lonely. And I think the moments where I did trap myself in a room to try and meet a deadline or get to the end of a project, they were the most dangerous. 
that that's when the story became one-dimensional. And I, I can't allow that to happen again. I want to end by asking you all um, the fundamental question I think that hinges around this panel. Can everyone truly tell stories today or does an intersection of privilege still propel whose stories get visibility and are allowed to influence, even in a digital world? And what can we do about that? I'm all for the democratization of storytelling. I think everyone should. Whether everyone can or can't is a, is a different question, but everyone definitely should uh, in some capacity. Um, and that might, because, I mean, I mean, you mentioned before that there is a danger in there being a single story. Uh, and I, I come across this all the time when um, the problem with minorities is that they're so wildly underrepresented. When they see someone from their own writing or publishing something, which is not exactly their experience, they get a bit frustrated because there's just no representation at all. So you want the very little thing out there to be exactly you because that's the only thing out there. And that's dangerous, and that's, it, it's heartbreaking that, that that is the problem. But the only response to that is that whoever, whoever doesn't feel represented should write their own story. The only response to that is that there would be another story and that there would be more writing in any capacity. And that's not necessarily writing, actually. Storytelling isn't necessarily writing, I don't think. I think it's um, any form of expression that, that can and does work and that gets the story across. Um, so I'm all for that democratization. I think if there's one blessing from the new avenues where we can share, it's this. Um, maybe a young person doesn't engage with um, their ancient heritage, and that's an issue. But I would be very happy if they still had the skill and the capacity to make a TikTok about it. Kalmini, do you have anything to add to that? Everybody has the ability to tell the story, to tell their own story or to retell stories that they have heard. Everyone has that ability. We all have that ability in sign language, in visual drawing, in ceramic sculpture, in vocalization, and in verbalization, right? We all have that ability to tell stories. But does everybody want to be a storyteller? And you must ask yourself the same question as you would if you learn to play the recorder and then you aspire to be a musician. Why do you want to be a musician? What does it entail being a musician? If you only know how to play the recorder and not the flute, when do you wish to learn to play the flute? Can you only play one tune? And if you can only play one tune on the recorder, does that make you a musician? So let's, you know, so this, this is again something that I discuss with my students to start thinking about the process, the long process of becoming a storyteller and the responsibility of actually sharing myth or personal narrative. Very different. When you share personal stories on a public platform, it's not the same as sharing folktale or mythology. This is something that you have experienced. It's your truth. So why do you want to share it? What do you want to achieve from it? And how are you going to handle the engagement or response that comes with this public sharing? So if people are not ready to think about these considerations, 
And think about the analogy about learning to play the recorder and knowing one tune and sitting next to a flautist who is a musician. And that whole space in between that took him time to get to that level and the battles that he fought. And this is basically the real world. If you want to put your truth out there, you must be ready and you must be equipped. So people like us teach. So when we teach, we try and equip that these are the things that you need to know, the techniques, the methods, um, the troubleshooting. And then when you're fully equipped, good luck. Raymond, any last words? Just um, everyone, not everyone can tell a story. Everyone tells a story. And the fundamental place you tell a story is to yourself in that head. A lot of us, that story is very frightening. But that awareness, that awareness that we are all story-making machines every single moment is, uh, uh, it, it doesn't come naturally, by the way. It's, act, it's practice to recognize that uh, in this moment, in this panel, I'm watching I'm other people's opinions. I'm gay. It's all the story I'm doing in my head. Uh, and that's the first place we tell our stories. And I think when we, can, uh, when we can have the capacity to see that, we're going to see stories in very different ways. I think writers and storytellers who have the capacity to remove themselves and see the world have something to say about the world. Until that gap exists, you're just throwing things up the wall. I think writers um, who have this ability to pull themselves and see their own story, this, is, this, is, this requires the craft. This requires that work. I'm not just putting things up that's there, but I'm observing and that observational tool. If you don't have that, if you don't have the capacity to understand what that means, I don't think you're a storyteller. Speaker, maybe, yeah? yeah? Okay. At this point, I'd like to open it up to the floor for any questions that you have in mind. Uh, we have someone coming up to you with a mic. Just raise your hand, please. I'm Lian here. It's really interesting for me to have listened the last one hour about how storytellers position themselves as storytellers and the wide spectrum of things. Um, I'm not a storyteller the way that I define myself as a storyteller. I'm a feminist popular educator, and I've used storytelling, sharing, reflecting as a methodology in the process of healing and to evoke the talk of suppressed pain. And as I hear the different panelists, there are many similarities, but it's just the way that we work with. And it was interesting for me to reflect for myself that I don't particularly identify myself as a storyteller, but yet I use the methodology in storying, as in making sense, as in facilitating the women I work with to make sense of their lived experiences, especially in terms of lived experiences of trauma and emotional distress, and how through that process of evoking talk of the buried silences, that you can actually, apart from using storytelling itself, a whole combination of other arts-based methods to get into the process of healing and getting people to talk their stories. That's a little bit of sharing. So I'm like sitting here asking myself, where am I in this whole, uh, you know, rhetoric of storytelling? Thank you. Maybe you could share some of that. And I've been using that methodology 
for the last 30, 40 years of work and continue to use that as well and find that very effective. And actually, I've come up with uh, booklets of women uh, talking their stories, at least the part of it that they are prepared to make it public and how that itself has been healing, not only through storing, storing, but actually uh, introducing other methods to talk about processing and healing and so forth. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you for that sharing. Um, you would be working in the field of applied storytelling and you definitely would be a story-making facilitator because people like you are very important because you are that connection, that catalyst, that stimulus, that inspiration, that hard work that allows other voices to be heard. So sometimes we are not necessarily the obvious storytellers, but we are the story facilitators that allow story-making in an applied storytelling situation. And that's very important work. All right, well, the panelists will be around for a short while after. I'd like to close this panel with a short quote from Jonathan Gorshell, um, who wrote The Storytelling Animal. He said, we are as a species addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. Thank you all so much. You've been a wonderful audience. A round of applause for the panelists.